Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, The Church, with a message titled, The Failure and Promise of the Local Church. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation 2 and 3 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It has occurred to me that, you know, if you've listened to this two-week series on the church, you might wonder whether I'm viewing the church through rose-colored glasses. And, you know, I've been speaking of the church as the body of Christ, doing the work that Jesus would do if he were physically here on earth, and also God's chosen means to bring untold grace into people's lives and also into the wider community. That's what the local church is and does. And it sounds wonderful, but is it really wonderful on the ground in everyday practical reality where people actually live and work and rejoice and suffer? I mean, is the local church really all of that? Well, I don't need to recount all the failings of the local church. I know of one family as their mother was old, failing in health, failing mental faculties. She's confined to a home. The family visits her faithfully. They never fail. But during that same period of time, they make repeated appeals to that local church where their mother had attended for so many years. Please, someone, come pray with her, share communion with her, bring blessings from Christ into her life. No one ever showed. She was out of sight, out of mind until she died. See, I know of one person who played a role of leadership in his local church and also in his denomination. Then several things went badly. He left the church. He was deeply wounded. He desperately wanted someone, anyone, either from the church or from the denomination, just to call to see if he was all right, and no one ever did. Years of faithful service, nobody cared. Years went by. Clearly, he realized no one had ever loved him there. Do I need to go on? I think you get the picture. The failures of the local church are many and varied. But even while I weep when I hear these stories, I also know that while it's true that many local churches have failed someone, it's also true that in a great many cases, the church did not fail. I know many shut-ins that local church never forgot. They were always there. And when that person passed away, they were there holding their hands. And I know of certain people hurt by the local church, but that same local church did all they could to humble themselves, seek reconciliation, find a way back. How the local church, yeah, sometimes failing, and yes, sometimes really rising to the call that Christ called her to. And what's fascinating is that if you've never experienced the local church, and if you simply just read what the New Testament said about it, you'd know both the glory and the failure of the local church. You'd read about the church in Corinth, and what would you think of them? Here's a church that Paul praises. Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 1.49. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Does that sound idyllic? 
Yeah, it does. In every way, says Paul, you are enriched in Christ. Nothing is lacking. Indeed, all the gifts that Christ gives to a local church were found in abundance in that church. And so convinced is Paul of the grace that has come to them, that in the end, he knows they will be presented guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, but then we read through the letter and we begin to encounter the problems that church had, deep divisions, lawsuits between believers against one another, open, rampant immorality that had not been addressed and discipline was not taken. They'd allowed the Lord's table to become a drunken feast. They'd used their freedom to injure one another. They had tolerated false teachers to the degree that many had become confused about basic Christian doctrines. What a mess! Yeah, the glory and the shame of one local church. You know, I think in this regard, a study of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 can be of great help. In these two chapters, we see Jesus walking among his churches, evaluating them. Those were seven churches which were then in the Roman province of Asia. And what's fascinating about Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is that we, who read these chapters years later, are given insight into how Jesus evaluates a local church. There were seven churches, all of them in seven separate cities, all of them in what now is in the geographical boundaries of the nation of Turkey. Those seven cities now don't exist, but they once did. And if you were to go from one city to the other, you would find that they existed in a circle. That's to say, the book of Revelation was written to be read to these seven churches. And the reader would go into circuitous route, reading the book in turn to each church. And as the book was being read, each church would hear Jesus' evaluation of how they were doing. They would hear the things that were admirable, and they would find out about their sins and what it is that Christ demanded of their church to do. Now, we who read this book so many years later should read these two chapters with great interest. Instead of evaluating our local church from our vantage point, we should learn to evaluate it from Christ's vantage point. What would Jesus say to your local church? Stop guessing. Let's read these two amazing chapters. We start with the church in Ephesus, the leading among the seven. This church was commended for their hard work for the gospel, and I expect that had everything to do with the fact that, you know, Paul had established a seminary there and that this church was on the leading edge of planting new churches and expanding the gospel and sending missionaries and so forth. Jesus looked on all of that with delight. Notice also that Jesus commends them for their patient endurance. They've been persecuted and mistreated by the wider population. You know, because the Christians didn't participate in idol worship, they weren't treated well. Yet they had remained faithful. But quite significantly, Jesus commends them because they've identified false teachers and false teaching and have made a stand for the truth. And that's important. Jesus thinks it is. He commends churches when they're not only active, but when they're defending and caring for the truth and teaching the truth. So what do we learn? Well, Christ wants your local church to teach the historic Christian doctrines. If your church does that, you should feel the smile from our Savior. But then comes the point of condemnation. I mean, what could be wrong with a church in Ephesus? And the answer is that they had lost the love they had at first. It might be that In their attempt to stamp out false teaching, they'd allowed suspicion to grow. They were quick to criticize, quick to condemn, and not quick 
to show genuine love and concern for others. And that tells us that Christ will condemn your church for harshness and for marginalizing the hurting. He demands compassion. So let's move to the next church, the church in Smyrna. This was a persecuted church subject to slander and the threat of imprisonment for their faith. No criticism is offered of this church. They've been bearing up. Jesus only encourages them. Be faithful unto death, he says, for if you do, you'll receive the crown of eternal life. Carry on just as you are. Wow, that must have been quite a church. Next, the church in Pergamum, also a persecuted church. Indeed, a church that had already been dealt a very severe blow. Some of their number had been martyred. Jesus commends them, for they have held fast. But Pergamum was also a sensual city, and some in that church had adopted the sexual mores of the city in which they lived, and for that Jesus condemns them. See, every once in a while we hear of people giving their views on Jesus, in which, at least so the line goes, that Jesus would approve of the sexual mores that are being portrayed in our culture. That would be no different from what seemed to have been the problem in ancient Pergamum. But Jesus constantly condemned something that you know, our Bible translates as sexual immorality. Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Notice sexual immorality gets put into a category with murder, with slander, with false witness, and so forth. So what's sexual immorality? Well, the Greek word is porneia, which means all sexual activity outside of the bounds of heterosexual marriage. No doubt about it. And it's possible for a local church because of intense cultural pressure, in some cases, even because of legal threats, to begin to adopt a view of Jesus that makes him culpable in today's sexual climate. Jesus condemns this attitude in his church. Let's go to the next church, and this one is in Thyatira. And this church has much to commend it. And Jesus finds five noteworthy things in this church. Let's list them. Number one, their works. Two, their love. Three, their faith. Four, their service. And five, their patient endurance under trial. I don't know about you, but when I see a list like that, I come to a conclusion, this must have been a very good church. What could be wrong with it? But a church with these virtues had allowed something to go terribly wrong. Every day we're so grateful and humbled at how God is blessing this ministry and broadening its reach. We want to share that Back to the Bible Canada has recently eclipsed 5,000 subscribers on YouTube. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported and tuned in. If you've never visited the YouTube channel before, be sure to check it out at Back to the Bible Canada and consider leaving a comment while you're there. One listener recently wrote, I've been a daily listener to the broadcast for a number of years. I'm especially grateful for Dr. John's teaching that God has used to correct, to guide, and to encourage me in the faith. There are times when it seems like the message is designed exactly for me. For more information or to support Back to the Bible Canada with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. How could anything be wrong in the church in Thyatira? Indeed, Jesus says that their latter works actually exceeded their first. 
He means this church was increasing in the grace of God. Well, what could be wrong here? But there is something terribly wrong. Jesus says they tolerate a woman who claims to be a prophetess who teaches people to accept the sexual morality of the day. See, many churches that are loving and serving have no way of dealing with evil. They're hopelessly naive. They think that as long as they're growing, they're doing well without ever identifying and fighting evil. Look, there is something called evil. There are false teachers, false prophets everywhere. There are those who would disrupt the grace of God. In Matthew 13, Jesus makes the point that the evil one comes and plants weeds in the midst of the wheat. And so it was with this woman. See, I hope you see what Christ demands of his church. He does demand good works and love and service, all of those things. But here again, we see that he demands that we take the matter of truth seriously and resist the spirit of the day. The next church Jesus addresses is the church in Sardis. And this local church, well, it's somewhat of a disaster. The words of Jesus begin this way. I know you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Oh, did that get your attention? Well, it should. You know, those words tell us that the way some of us judge a good church and the way Jesus judges a good church, well, those two might be at odds with each other. Clearly, the only one whose judgment counts is Jesus. And here's the problem. You know, things were happening in this church. People were excited about it. But Jesus says that church was dead. You know, a great many people think that when a church is alive, it's because, you know, many people attend and, the, you know, the music really kicks it or some other external measurement. Jesus is unimpressed with what impresses us. So what was the problem at Sardis? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, there's still hope for the people of Sardis. For there were a few people in that church who had not soiled their garments, he says. And then Jesus goes on to say that the one who conquers will be clothed in white. Well, white garments are a symbol of purity, of character, the life of holiness. And so the problem now becomes plain. The church in Sardis could really put on a great show. But in Jesus' sight, all that was nothing. What was lacking was holiness and moral purity, spotless character, a witness of righteousness. I think the people of that church easily fell into all manner of sins and lived only to satisfy their own wants. Think about that problem in today's terms. Think of a church that everyone's talking about. I mean, they put on a show, everyone's talking, but in time, that same church is embroiled in moral scandals. So what does Jesus think about that? Well, he says the world and the wider culture thinks you are alive, but I know you're dead. So now let's move on to the church in Philadelphia. Now here's a church, fascinatingly enough, that Jesus doesn't chastise in any way. He only says positive things. Can you imagine such a thing? But it's true. So what are the positives? Well, they include the words, I know you have but little power. That's not a rebuke, it's a fact. This church had no influence either in politics or in shaping the culture of their city, no power. And for that reason, it would have been quite easy to dismiss this church, but Jesus doesn't. He says, you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. That's amazing. They were obedient to the word. They were not ashamed of Jesus, even in a city that didn't welcome him. You see, Jesus doesn't think the power of the impact of a church is nearly as important as the enduring faithfulness of that church. That's the measure of any local church. Are they faithful to the commands of Jesus? Because if they are, Jesus is pleased. 
Now, that's the ultimate measure of any church. And finally, the church we've all heard about, and that's the church of Laodicea. You know, the church is the mirror opposite of the church of Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, Jesus only commends them, no criticism. And in Laodicea, well, there's not one single word of praise, only criticism. Imagine that. Jesus goes so far as to say that he's on the verge of spitting them out of his mouth, of disassociating himself with them. Yeah, it's true. There are churches who claim to be allied with Jesus, but the tragedy is Jesus is not allied with them. It can happen and sometimes does. And in the case of Laodicea, they were neither hot nor cold. Now, please don't read our contemporary understanding of those words, hot and cold, into Jesus' rebuke. See, if hot and cold actually meant what we mean by it today, that would be like saying, Jesus says, I wish you were either on fire for me or cold in regards to me. I mean, how can Jesus say he would rather that they were cold towards him than lukewarm towards him? That would make no sense at all. Rather, what Jesus is referring to is an analogy taken from the water system in Laodicea, one neighboring city of Laodicea was known for its hot springs. And then on the other side, another neighboring city was well known for its cold drinking water. But the underground springs in Laodicea saw a mixing of those two streams of water. And that meant that the water of Laodicea was useless for drinking, but it was also useless for the kind of mineral baths that were enjoyed in another place. And Jesus was telling the church in Laodicea, there's not one thing I can use you for. You are useless to me. Now, those words should have shocked that church. You know, Jesus knew full well that they would be shocked because in Revelation 3, 17, Jesus is speaking and he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered and need nothing. Look how well we're doing, they would have said. We pay our bills. Our budget is in an excellent condition. Our building is the talk of the town. We pay our staff, and we have money to start new projects. We have all we ever needed. We've been blessed by God. Wealth and prosperity must be the signs of faith, they say. I know there are churches that feel that having money is the standard they use as to whether or not they've been blessed by God. What a tragedy. Listen to Jesus' response. You are wretched, pitiable, blind and naked. Shocking words. They are spiritually blind to things of eternal value. And whatever they did had no lasting spiritual good. They were no doubt busying themselves with many things, but they paid no attention to the things that Christ demanded of his church. In the end, not paying attention of what their Savior wanted, they were of no good to their Savior. You know, can you put all this together? Yeah, I think we can. Christ demands that his local church be obedient to his word, that she hold fast to biblical doctrines that are revealed in scripture. He demands that we hold them and teach them. He also demands that we not allow false teachers to find a foothold. Well, what else? He demands love and service and living a life that is self-giving and caring for the least of these. He demands that we care for the hurting, that we bind up the wounded, that we chase after the straying sheep, that we make sure that people are cared for and loved. Well, what else? Well, Christ demands that his church remain holy and pure and undefiled from the forms of morality that this world applauds, be they sexual mores or the values of selfishness and self-indulgence that we see. He demands that we reject the world. Well, what else? Well, Christ demands that we be willing to suffer for the faith, 
that we endure the harsh response of this world, then we do it for a lifetime. Be faithful unto death, he says, and you'll receive the crown of life. Well, what else? He wants us to be winsome to the lost, to care for the poor. I hope you see. The things that so many value are not the things Christ values. Rather, when we read of the very first church in Jerusalem, we find they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And that about sums up what Jesus wants for his church. But what if the church begins to fall from this? Well, first of all, don't be surprised. Every local church, like every individual Christian, is both called by Christ to be his, but also is prone to sinning, failing. So what's to be done about that? Well, listen to the words of Jesus given to the church in Ephesus, Revelation 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's a promise as well as a threat. And that tells us that we ought not to abandon the church that Jesus loved and died for. But it does mean that we should be praying for our local church and seek for revival and restoration. That we need also to repent of everything that displeases our Savior. But whatever else, please do not forget that as prone to error and disappointment as a local church is, she still is the church that our Savior died for. And for that reason, never, 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 never give up on the local church. Thanks for a wonderful message and a wonderful series, John. Maybe as a last word in the series, you can help those struggling with attending church with a very basic question, why? Yeah, and uh, I've been trying to answer that for you know the last two weeks. Um, and, and I guess that the first answer to the why question is that Christ demands it of us. So just simply, I will submit to Christ in every area of my life. So we start there. I think there's so much more that we can say, that Christ has so designed the church so that I will not be successful in my Christian life without it. And then there are sometimes, you know, some very, you know, important just uh, spiritual and and also, let let me say, psychological reasons. Um, The the reality of um, spirituality constructed simply alone is not the kind of spirituality that leads to God. And so uh, let's be a part of the local church. Let's rejoice in it, even though it has failures. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. Last month, Back to the Bible Canada shared the exciting news that our young adult ministry in doubt has welcomed Andrew Marcus as its new host and director. After much prayer and planning, In Doubt is ready to relaunch this month with exciting new programming. In addition to our regular weekly radio program and podcast, you can now access on YouTube and indoubt.ca the In Doubt Show. New episodes will be posted every Monday, featuring guests well-equipped to speak into the challenges of faith, life, and culture that so many young adults are facing today. Humor, fun, but most importantly, a source of biblical truth for those in doubt. 
Be sure to check out our In Doubt YouTube channel or podcast and share the word with other young adults in your lives. Stay tuned for more exciting news in the weeks ahead. And for more information or to support this important ministry, visit indoubt.ca.